Hear the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again, they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Havel Commas. It's great to be worshiping with you here this morning. I'm super excited about this morning because we're starting a new sermon series. And yes, those are the things that get pastors excited. I'm sorry. Sermon series. Yeah. Um, We've been in the Gospel of John for quite a while, so it's kind of refreshing to shift to Ruth, which is a book from the Old Testament, which is fun. Plus, Ruth is only one of two books in the Bible named after a woman, also amazing. Plus, Um, One of the main tensions in the book is how difficult it is for women to navigate patriarchal societies, and I'm so glad that Scripture speaks to this reality. Plus, each week, an artist from our church is going to create something to accompany every single sermon. Plus, at the end of this series, on the very last week of our series, we are going to capstone this series with a service called Ruth Reimagined, 
Ruth Reimagined. And we are going to see, instead of our normal worship service, we're actually going to have um, a series of each chapter in Ruth told through the lens of art and music and story. So that is going to be Ruth Reimagined on June 4th. It's going to be awesome. This week, Benjamin Ober has created for us a painting to accompany the narrative of Ruth chapter 1. It is here. Um, It is also on the screens. It did not slip my attention that he knew he was going to be gone this Sunday. So make some art and then don't show up for its reception. Super sneaky of him. Um, I also can't believe he just made this in the last couple days. Uh, The paint is literally still wet on it. So don't touch it. I know you wanted to touch it. Don't touch it. Your fingers will be blue. Um, But I hope that it speaks to you this morning in a unique and memorable way. That's the heart behind this series. In that spirit, I also invite you to pause with me for a moment of silence so that we can name um, whatever is on our hearts, and we can name whatever is on our minds, and we can trust those things to the Lord with transparency and honesty this morning. So please join me in a moment to bring everything we are to the Lord. Lord, you know our hearts. You know that um, we don't have to bring our perfect selves to you any morning. We don't have to show up and put on a happy face if we're not feeling happy, but you accept us and love us and ask us to come just as we are. Lord, give us the courage to do that, not only with you this morning, but also with each other. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Uh, So for the last few months, I have been meeting with a spiritual director. What is a spiritual director? All right, so... um, If you read his salutation on his emails underneath his name, it actually says, spiritual director, deep listener. And I was like, man, what a sweet thing to say about yourself. I'm a deep listener. But it actually is a really valuable skill. It is something much harder than it seems to be. He, in our sessions, helps me listen to myself. He helps me listen to God. He helps me listen to the world around me in a deep way. In our last session that we actually had, he um, tossed out a follow-up question after listening to me so deeply. He asked me if I was operating in survival mode. And I realized, instant conviction, that I was operating in survival mode. And every day for me was kind of feeling like a battle. I was trying to do all of these things. I was trying to be a good parent, which involves keeping the kids alive, right? Fed, clean, rested, but also to spend time with each of them and love them well and nurture their little souls. It was being a pastor and trying to support people who are going through various struggles and feeling the weight of spiritual things. It's being a church planter, which is basically like starting and running a small business, which means creating teams and working with lots of people. Toss in a couple surgeries, the discovery of a genetic condition, becoming a foster family, and a few dozen other things over time that I just got used to. These just became my life. And I'd done it for so long that I'd gotten so used to all of that weight. But it wasn't a normal weight. It was actually heavy. It was like really heavy. So my therapist, who is different from the spiritual director, sensed the same thing. And she gave me a list of 43 stressors and asked me to mark the 43 stressors, whichever ones applied to me over the last few years. And at the end of it, you get a score of like stressors in your life. So a score above 300, and you've got an 80% risk of experiencing a health-induced breakdown. So a score over 300. My survey score was 429, so (laughs) yikes, right? Okay, they both saw what was obvious to them, but not necessarily obvious to me. I couldn't see myself as clearly. I was actually in trouble. Maybe you have been there. But I was also pushing. After all, 
Someone's got to buy the groceries. I'll do it. Someone's got to change the diaper. I'll do it. Build a new church website, preach a sermon, make dinner, fix the water heater, clean out the litter box, lead a small group, support a hurting friend. I'll do it. What else you got, world? Bring it on. I'll do it. I just said I a lot in that paragraph. I'll do it. Survival mode for me looked like self-reliance, self-sufficiency. Sure, I'll juggle a million things at once. I don't need anyone else. I'll do it. I'll do it. The weight got heavier, and my response to the weight getting heavier was to get harder, to get tougher, to get stronger, and to do it alone, to conquer alone. I'll do it. Alone. There are a lot of reasons we end up alone like that. For me, it was independence. It was pride. For some, it's a trust issue. Can I trust this person? We've lost a lot of trust in recent years. And the government, in organized religion, in media outlets, in corporations, in the police, our fears have multiplied over the last few years. There's war in Europe. There's financial uncertainty. There's gun violence. AI is stealing all the jobs. And all that fear can seep into our relationships with other people. When we're constantly afraid, we're constantly on edge. And it's hard to trust other people. It's hard to trust that our partners or our parents or our neighbors or our friends will really be there for us when we need them to be. Can I trust them? And out of fear, we might opt for a preemptive strike, right? We keep others at a distance to protect ourselves. We establish boundaries. We reject them before they have a chance to reject us. It's safer that way. Or maybe you simply lean introverted. You're not going to spill your guts to basically a total stranger at soul food. You move slowly and you move deliberately into relationships. And finally, another factor in our aloneness is that COVID didn't really help, did it? A study of 5,400 Finnish workers found that the longer employees spent apart from each other, the more they lost faith in each other. When we don't see each other, when we don't talk to each other, when we don't pass each other in the hallways or on the playground or in the break room, we start to lose trust in each other automatically just because we're not seeing each other regularly. And it becomes a vicious cycle. Life gets hard. We feel threatened. We push others away. So we're more alone. So life gets hard. So we feel threatened. So we push others away. This is the cycle that I think we see in the book of Ruth. The story begins, Ruth chapter 1, during the days when the judges led Israel. And if you read the book of Judges, it records this as a time full of violence and murder and incest and idolatry and fear and failure, and they are stories that would make you weep to read them. They were truly the darkest days for Israel. And in these dark days, we have a family. We have a husband, a wife, and two sons. And right away with our family, more tragedy. There's a famine, there's no food, no one has any food. So to survive, the family leaves their home, Judah, and they travel to Moab, which was a bold move because the Moabite people were believed to be the distant relatives from the shady side of Father Abraham's family, pagan worshipers who even practiced child sacrifice. So a move to Moab was a pretty desperate move for an Israelite family, a move of last resort. And like any immigrant family, they would have had to learn a new language and a new culture and a new communication style, and they would feel homesick, and they would experience culture shock. And they would have to come to the grips with the truth that, try as they might, 
they would never really feel like one of them. They would always carry a sense of otherness that can feel so lonely and so alienating. But at least they had each other, right? Until they didn't, because tragedy strikes again. Ruth 1.3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. And while navigating the grief of that death, which, by the way, was number one on the list of stressors on the 43 stressors test, death of a spouse, while navigating that grief, Naomi was confronted with the reality of also being a single parent suddenly, a daunting task in any era, but especially in that patriarchal age. Men were the sole breadwinners and the sole protectors, and the death of a husband put the whole family at risk. So Naomi looks to her two sons, the next men standing In her day, sons were literally your retirement account and your social security check and your long-term health care plan. So the best thing that she could do to secure her future was to marry them off to nice Hebrew girls to start families of their own and have more sons. Except there's a problem. There in Moab, there are no Hebrew girls here, and Moabite girls were not on the approved marriage list. But they're out of options. So the sons unceremoniously take Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. Maybe this would work. Maybe they'd have security at last. But a decade passes and no sons. Verse 5, the final tragedy. Both sons die. And Naomi is left alone without her husbands or her two sons. This is trauma and suffering on a titanic level. She's lost everything. I mean, this is her past because she's lost her past. This is her present, and this is her future, and she's lost all of it. We're talking Job-level losses. This is curse God and die-level loss. And she was done. Naomi's done. Done with Moab, done with the pain, done with the ache, done with the sadness, done with her dreams. The Hebrew language hammers this home here in verse 5. It doesn't say Naomi, but it says, the woman stands alone. The structure of the sentence puts emphasis on her isolation. She stood as a woman alone in this world. Well, she's not totally alone, right? Ruth is there, and Orpah is there. Daughters-in-law who have also lost husbands, who are also hurting. But caught up in the vicious cycle, as life got harder and harder, Naomi pushes them away. She chose isolation, so she pleads with them, go back to your mother's home. Maybe the Lord, may the Lord bless you with, reward you with kindness. May the Lord bless you with what I don't have and what I can never have again, the security and protection and rest of another husband. Go. Like, leave me here. Go. Shockingly, Orpah and Ruth protest, no, no. We want to return with you to your people. But Naomi will not have it. She keeps pushing them away. Easier to push them away than to feel responsible for them. Easier to push them away now than have them resent her later. So she tries harder. Guys, I'm old. I can't have more sons. I'm literally useless to you. The Lord has given me this bitter cup to drink. I'm doomed. You're not. I'm doomed. You're not. So go back home. Go back to your people. You still have a chance. Start over again. They share more tears, and this time Orpah is convinced. She obeys her mother-in-law. She goes back to Moab to start over. It was sad for all of them, but it was the smart choice. 
the wise choice. Frankly, I suspect it's the choice we would make for our children if our children were in that circumstance. But Ruth, Ruth stays. The Hebrew says that Ruth clings to Naomi. This is the same word used in Genesis 2, 24, when it talks about a man leaving his mother and father and clinging to, holding to, uniting to his wife. Ruth clings to Naomi with that kind of family commitment and strength. Even though they're from enemy nation, Ruth grabs Naomi and she hangs on to her. She doesn't need to go back to Moab to find a husband and make a new family. She has a family. It's Naomi. She has that already. Ruth's next words form an oath, and it's the only time in Scripture that a woman offers this kind of vow. It's loyalty language. It's, these are words so powerful that they're often still used today in marriage ceremonies to seal marriages between Christians and Jews. And as we read them, I'm just like goosebumps, right? Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die there, and I will be buried there. May the Lord punish me severely if I break this vow with anything other than death. Ruth doesn't accept the status quo of her patriarchal society that says she has to be a good daughter-in-law and obey her mother-in-law. She doesn't accept the notion that she has to find a husband to be secure. She doesn't accept the limits imposed upon her choices. She does what she wants to do when she wants to stay with Naomi, a choice that guarantees Naomi's presence and it guarantees Naomi's future. She stays with Naomi so that she would be there to care for Naomi for the rest of Naomi's life. It's a costly choice. It effectively guarantees that Ruth will never marry again. For if she goes to Israel with Naomi, what Hebrew man's going to marry her? A widowed Moabite woman. What about her future? Who's going to give her sons? Who's going to care for her when she's old? Big questions. And yet, and yet, and yet, Ruth chooses Naomi's future over her own. She leaves her land. She leaves her history. She leaves her culture. She leaves her future, and she leaves it all to stay with Naomi, to fully identify as one of God's own people, clinging. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. It's an incredible kind of love. True love, lasting love, committed, loyal love, love that won't let go. Our individualistic, self-reliant, tough-it-out way of thinking says that the best and smartest and strongest among us are the ones that don't really need anything from anyone else. The strongest of us are those who feel 100% whole without needing a romantic partner or the approval of others or the connection to a family or a community. Connection with another person, connection with God even, that's a bonus on life, not an essential component to our well-being. Connection's a supplement, not a staple. But that's actually not the way it works. If you look at research and you look at studies, that's not the way that our lives actually work. Connections with others is essential. Connection is as essential as food is. It's as essential as breathing is. Babies can literally die of loneliness, even if all of their other needs are met. Our need for connection isn't a weakness. It is a biological need. 
But often, when we're at those lowest points, when like Naomi, we've been pummeled by one tragedy after another, we push people away. We're doomed, but you save yourself. I'm doomed, but save yourself. How dark is Naomi's world in this moment? Well, her response to Ruth's amazing, bold declaration of commitment is not to jump up and down and celebrate. She doesn't melt with relief. She doesn't express any gratitude. Verse 18, she saw that Ruth was determined, and so she said nothing in response. Naomi stops pushing Ruth away. That's like the limit of her response. She allows Ruth to come, and together these two women trudge the long road back to Israel. But for Naomi, I think, in the midst of this darkness, a sliver of light, right? Ruth's coming with her. That's Naomi's perspective. But what about Ruth? Why does Ruth even want to stay with Naomi? Is Ruth just a really good person? Is she obligated to stay? Why make a lifelong commitment to Mama Sunshine here, right? I think a clue might be found in the blessing that Naomi prayed for Orpah and Ruth way back in verse 8. As she tried to push these two women away, remember she prays for them, and she says, this is ESV translation here, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and my family. Deal kindly here is an English translation of a special Hebrew word, and it's the word hesed. Hesed. It's a word for love. It's a word for God's love. It's not the kind of love you read on Hallmark cards or see in romantic movies or eat in the shape of stale candy hearts. It is nothing so ordinary as this. It's a deep love. It's a love that clings. It's a love that won't let go. A love that never gives up. A love that endures every circumstance. It's the kind of love we see most perfectly and most completely in the one who literally went where we went and lived where we lived and died where we died. Who would rise from the grave to prove beyond the shadow of any doubt that there is no darkness and no grief and no loss or no despair that we will ever be in that is a place where we're alone. For Jesus Christ is with us and committed to saving us no matter the cost. It's the glimmer of light on the horizon when everything else seems so dark. And for years, it seems, 10 years, Ruth has shown this kind of loving kindness to Naomi and her family. For years, they've shared meals together. For years, they've swapped stories. For years, they've folded laundry and shared secrets, and gone to the well for water, and swept floors, and stitched garments, and prayed prayers. This was not the first time that they were sad together. This was not the first tough moment for them. This was not the first time they'd cried together. In other words, Ruth and Naomi were already deeply connected before this crossroads moment. And because of that connection, when Naomi was at her lowest point, when she'd taken body blow after body blow, when she was done, when she was empty, when she was exhausted, when she resigned herself to a life of isolation and loneliness, when she tried to push Ruth away, Ruth stuck with her. She covered her. She cared for her. You don't decide to commit your future to a stranger, unless you're on a Netflix show. But normally, you don't decide to trust your future to a total stranger. You decide to commit your future to someone that you know. This isn't a new connection. It's been a long time coming. And that's actually what happened in my story, too. 
back in November when things were really bad, instead of doubling down on I'll do it, I actually realized I cannot do it. I cannot do it. Not alone. So I reached out to help. And I didn't go to random people. I went to people I already knew. I went to my dad and mom. I went to my brothers and sisters, my brothers-in-laws and sisters-in-laws, the best man in my wedding, many of you here in this room. Connections long established, cultivated over time, years of eating meals together, years of sharing stories together, years of showing up for gatherings when we were really tired, years of showing up for small groups even though we were swamped and scatterbrained and we didn't really feel like going, years of small, seemingly insignificant interactions, micro-connections, but all lashed together to form a bond of astonishing strength. I'm talking about connections at Soul Food that turn into meetups at the park, that turn into conversations over coffee, that turn into babysitting the kids, that turn into movie nights, that turn into rides to the airport, that turn into trips to the bowling alley to rage against some candle pins, that turn into, hey, I know we're friends, but would you consider being my spiritual director? That turn into, I just lost my job. Will you come over with some wine? <laughs> I see you're not doing well. I'm here for you. My marriage is in trouble. Will you get on a plane and come watch the kids for a weekend? Hey, we've got an open bedroom. Why don't you stay with us for a while? That turned into my husband's life is hanging in the balance. Will you walk with me through the park? That's God's Hesed love. Manifest in the hearts of God's people, cultivated through a thousand small moments. So that when the big moment comes, when the darkness threatens to overwhelm us, we see this beacon of light and we know that we are not alone. That's the theme that inspired Ben's art this week. The assurance that all is not lost. That in Christ, together, we aren't actually alone. Here's the invitation. Commit to regular relationships. Commit to regular, ordinary friendship. As we see with Ruth, this connection doesn't have to be the marriage-y kind. In fact, often it's not. It can be relationships of all kinds. It can be relationships with friends, or with BFFLs, or with your boys, or with the gals, or with work colleagues, or with neighbors, with the family you were born into, or the family that you've made along the way. We want these deep connections. We want them desperately. But the moment of deep connection is only possible because we've had a hundred dime a dozen regular interactions first. And we've got work to do. We've got to invest in these relationships over the long haul, laying the foundation over a thousand small interactions. Two footnotes I want to make. First, not everything has to be deep. Sometimes we put all this pressure on ourselves and others to get to these deep levels all the time in every single encounter that we have. We want our connections to be IVs for our souls. And if that's our expectation, when we have an interaction that doesn't feel super deep or intense, we can walk away feeling even more lonely than we felt in the first place. It is perfectly okay to have a hundred small, short, surfacey connections. A handshake in a driveway. Remembering a birthday. Sending a random encouraging text message. Watching a bad movie together. Signing up for a meal train, going over for game night, chilling by the fire pit, making small talk, noticing when someone's not there. 
picking up on a nonverbal cue, being okay with awkward silence, praying for someone. Don't, don't underestimate the sum of a thousand little loves like that. Second, this is for my introverted friends out there, and I know you're out there. Heads down, I know it. You don't have to be friends with everybody. <laughs> you don't have to be friends with everybody. We will not have capacity to be friends with everybody. We won't click with everybody. Church gatherings tend to be cleared, geared towards extroverts who can't wait to talk to all the people. Even a gathering in this size, this scale, this can be intimidating, even terrifying. Feeling anxious in a group is not a defect. It's you being the you God made you to be. You don't have to connect with everyone. But it would be nice over time to connect with someone. Every connection, no matter how small, is adding another brush stroke to the whole painting. And those brush strokes add up to something amazing. When the big moment comes, we can love like Ruth did, or love like Jesus did. Love when it's messy, when it hurts, when it's not convenient, when it's costly, when it's full of conflict even. When we reflect God's Hesed love poured out in a thousand little actions, then our neighbors will see that Jesus is right here, like right here in Haverhill, or in your homes, or in your companies, or in your schools, or in your families, in this church. And they'll see that God's perfect Hesed love is patient, and it is kind, and it never gives up, and it never loses faith, and it's always hopeful, and it always endures through every circumstance. Today, friends, know without question or hesitation that Christ's love will not let you go. And neither will we, God's people. We will not let you go. And in the security of God's love, weave a love made of a thousand threads, tiny threads, to cover those near you and to protect those near you with the love of Christ. Amen? Amen.